Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 2. It's a delight to bring back to our airwaves John Gabriel. He is the editor-in-chief at RicochetRicochet.com. He is the host of The King of Stuff, a contributor to the Arizona Republic, and a sometime guest host of this show. John, welcome back. You didn't think we were spam calling you, did you, John? Not at all. Of course not. <laughs> okay. My producer was uh, my producer's always nervous. We he's not sure how the caller ID shows up when we call people. Sometimes <laughs> we just call, start cold calling guests. How are you, man? It's been a while. You doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing fine. I was kind of I was kind of just speaking on, on off the cuff uh, in the last hour a little bit about the odd timing we're in. You know, George Orwell in 1984. You want to know the best T-shirt I've seen all year? The best T-shirt I've seen all year, John, maybe maybe Ricochet could make them and sell them. Make George Orwell fiction again. <laughs> yeah. And he, so I was quoting him in, in 1984, of course, where he talks about nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. You know how everything's been gone exactly. away, gone down the memory hole. And I was thinking, you know, this year there have been like 20 stories that in a normal country and in a normal year would have been the story of the year, but they just come and go so fast with no settling on them. A- a- any number of examples, even in the last 24 hours, would do. We learned in the dead of night last night that the um, the number of Americans stranded, left behind in Afghanistan, wasn't 100, which itself should have been a story of the year, but more close right. closer to 300, it turns out. And that, that's not going to be a news story, really, of any consequence. Both of those should have been a story. The NIH uh, discovering the veracity of Rand Paul's charges about funding the Wuhan Virology Lab. There's about four stories in there. Joe Biden, last night, I mean, he probably gave us six or seven things. But there's a lot of that just comes and goes so very, very quickly, including National School Board Association uh, getting countenance from the attorney general and calling fellow Americans domestic terrorists requiring of the FBI to surveil them for exercising their petition of the government for a a redress of grievances. I mean, anyway, I was just thinking about this. I just thought I'd run it by you for if you're seeing some of the same phenomenon. Trying to drink from a fire hose. Yeah. And, you know, just having to write, I'm sure, a host of the talk show as well. It's like, gosh, which of these 72 earth-shattering stories should I cover today? It's very tough to uh, figure out what to do. And that Biden town hall last night, boy, I spent the first maybe six months of this administration wondering, okay, who's really running the government? Because obviously not this guy. And now, about six months in, I realized, I don't think anyone is. I, I don't think anybody in the White House knows who's running things. It's just... It's kind of like when you got a fire hose and everybody lets go of it and it just snakes around on its own. That's what it feels like the news is like, our government's like. It's just crazy. I call it a crisis industrial complex. But do you remember – you probably do remember this. I remember Jen Psaki's very first press conference at the beginning of this year, and I think it lasted about four minutes. And the whole point was just to show the calm and the control and the no drama and how distinct this is going to be, contradistinct, this is going to be from the previous administration and the media just loved it. Boy, every day's a dumpster fire over there since then, it seems like. Yeah, it is nothing but drama, and the press has been trying to look the other way, but I think the poll numbers for Biden 
you know, you're you're starting to see the cracks in the veneer of competence and calm, no drama kind of reporting on this because the American people know that something is very wrong. And even those they might have said, you know what, I'm tired of Trump, I'm tired of that drama. Yeah. Biden sounds boring, so I guess I'll give him a choice. Yeah. Boy, people have turned on Biden now, especially numbers among Republicans are down, of course, but they are among Democrats, too, and the real plummet has happened from the independents. And here in Arizona, um, if you look at the party registration, Republicans still have uh, the advantage, but it's only by maybe one percentage point. Second largest party, if you can call it that, is the independents. They're the ones who decide a lot of elections in the state, and people are just bailing. And it's hurting Democrats. Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, who's uh, running to be, I guess, a delayed re-election as governor. Yeah. And even in New Jersey, the governor there, he, he's down to uh, within, I think he's ahead four points among independents. So it's really, um, they have to start realizing that Biden isn't popular, and for all their bashing of Kirsten Cinema and Mansion, I'm thinking those two are going to be rewarded for opposing Biden, and they will be in trouble because maybe they didn't oppose him toughly, you know, harshly enough. No, that that that's interesting. I was going to make a little bit of a joke and say you you, you said Republicans are tired of uh, you know have always been tired of Biden, but those numbers are getting worse. <laughs> Democrats are tired of Biden. I was going to also say even Republicans who voted for Biden are getting tired of Biden. <laughs> Don't forget that third category about which I think we need to get some receipts on later, or at least I do. Oh, yeah. I don't want. Okay, you're with me. All right, I, I didn't want to drag you into my into my mud, but okay, if you want to come. It's warm. Uh, John, um, that's an interesting thing because I get calls, as I know you do, saying, who is it who's running this administration? And the the best working theories were some people were saying, well, it's really Obama leftovers. might be Obama himself. It's your it's your it's your Susan Rice's and Valerie Jarrett's and Ron Klain's. And I, I suspect Susan Rice has a big hand in this. It might also be a little bit of uh, of Dr. Jill Biden, a little bit. I saw right. I saw yesterday or the day before Joe Biden giving a speech at the White House. I don't know if you saw this. The band is playing Hail to the Chief. He steps up to the podium. Do you see this? And he starts talking while they're still playing. And she walks up to him, Dr. Jill Biden. Does. She walks up to him and says, stop, watch me and walks away. And I thought, you know, if you Google 25th Amendment, you're going to get a hell of a lot of stories from 2020 and 2019. Oh, yeah. You think you might want a few on 2021? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it is really uh, crazy to watch. Uh, We've never experienced anything like this. And we've had presidents in the past. President Wilson had a stroke in the last year, year and a half. He was uh, not really running things. His wife and his advisors were, but... You know, those weren't the days of the 24-hour news cycle. Now they cart them out like the CNN town hall. Yeah, yeah. And, you know. What was your takeaway from last night? Angels attendant to be up on stage with him. It's like, this is not looking good. And it's not even to insult him. It's just, 
this is really worrisome with the dangerous world we live in. If you watch closely, you even get a little sense from your Anderson Coopers of the world that they're sensing, just even from their body language or eyes, they're sensing, right. sensing something's not quite. What, what did you? What was your major takeaway from last night, or what were your takeaways? So, What's that fist thing? That, that, I mean, there's just a lot of odd stuff going on there, isn't there, with Joe Biden? Yeah, yeah. He is just a very, it was a very strange performance. It's just unsettling. Like yeah, I say, yeah. my dad, who's passed away now, he dealt with, for many, many years, dealt with dementia, and then a couple of years after that, they added Alzheimer's to the diagnosis as well. Um, and I know during the Democratic primary debates with Biden, everybody I talked to, because many of my friends were of a certain age, where other friends of mine have had parents or even grandparents who have suffered They see that. something quite I familiar. I yeah. like, I don't want to be insensitive or mean. However, yeah. have you noticed this? And they're all like, oh, yeah, this is exactly how it started with my parents, with my grandparents, whoever. And it wasn't even a question to them. Everybody was just kind of, something isn't right. And Anderson Cooper last night, you know, he can't think of the name of the port where uh, supplies ships are backed up. And Anderson Cooper jumps at, oh, that, that's Long Beach, Mr. President. You know, he's, he's like trying to answer the questions for him. Mm-hmm. And the audience, when he's forgetting things, the audience is like openly laughing, despite being obviously a left-leaning audience. So it's uh, really bad what's going on here. And they got themselves into trouble because the number two is Kamala Harris. Yeah. She is. Talk about bizarre. <laughs> We're just like dying laughing at the creepiest things about death and war and, you know. And fake, 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 oh, right? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the thing she was spending all her time on was the evacuation of Afghanistan. This was even though she was given the the issue of the border, which I think probably, if we're being honest, none of us thought was going to work out. <laughs> but but when she, when she said the entire administration is focused on the on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, turns out she's making videos with actors to promote NASA at that same week. And it may, yep. is, is everything about this administration week? I stack. I still don't have a good answer as to why they're using staged versions, staged versions of the Oval Office instead of the real. Th- I got to hit a break. Are, are you good for a little bit? You having fun? I sure am. All right. I'll hold on. We'll be right back. I'm Seth Leibson. He's John Gabriel. Ricochet.com is probably the first place I would send you to get more about him. He is the editor-in-chief there as well as a contributor to the Arizona Republic and the host of the King of Stuff podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. The King of Stuff is on the line. John Gabriel, he is also the editor-in-chief at Ricochet, ricochet.com. Sometimes he guest hosts this show when I'm unable to make it. John, uh, <laughs> the uh, we were just going into the break thinking about uh, you know what the Democratic Party at its highest levels uh, now represents in the form of leadership. And if you go down the line, you're right. You go to you go Joe Biden, you go to Kamala Harris – Somehow, should that not work out, it steadily becomes a worse and worse parade of horribles. You go to Nancy Pelosi, and if that doesn't work out, you go to Patrick Leahy, who's 82. I mean, if that doesn't work out, then you're with Anthony Blinken, I guess. But my gosh, When's the last time you looked at the chairman of of of, of the House House Ways and Means Committee that writes our tax bill? 
You seen Rosa DeLauro lately? <laughs> this is who our country is in the hands of. Yeah, it really is just a parade of horribles. It's all those people, when I was the nerdy college student watching C-SPAN, they were all the villains, the up-and-coming villains yeah. <laughs> in the 90s that I could stand, would yell at, uh, yell at my TV, and uh, now they're running things, um, and they have only gotten worse in the interim. And Joe Biden is another one of these guys, uh, despite the press during the election, just saying, oh, he's such a good guy, yeah. and he's so compassionate and a unifier. I'm like... Have you ever seen Joe Biden be compassionate or unifying of anyone? Yeah. You know, this is a guy no, who no, it's a totally good... put us all back in chains and all that malarkey, to use this term. No, I, I think that's exactly right. This It reminds me of nothing so much you're old enough to remember as I am, John, just a few years ago when we, when I as a Republican, when we were conservatives were told that you guys better accept this Merrick Garland nomination to the Supreme Court. You're not going to do any better. That's the best Democrat you're ever going to get. You'll never find a more moderate Democrat nominee to the Supreme Court than that. It kind of reminds me a little bit of that, John. It just reminds me a little bit of that. Right. It's just gaslighting all the way down. And, yeah, Merrick Garland, boy, would he be a disaster. Thank you, Mitch McConnell, for stopping that guy. Absolutely. sitting on the high court because— if he's this um, bad as just running the DOJ, you know, threatening parents as terrorists and, you know, just all this woke nonsense that he's pushing, um, boy, he would have been bad on the high, co- high court for life. Um, so good we finally have some conservatives on there. Well, we hope. Uh, we hope, yeah. <laughs> we hope they all are conservatives when it comes to voting on things like pro-life issues and the like, but um Boy, Merrick Garland would have been a mess up there on the high court. This really is the thing that we conservatives, we're doing a better and better job of waking up to it. And I get our inclination, our natural resistance to wanting to use the courts this way. But we're just waking up to the point that I think we now take this stuff much more seriously than we used to. Who is this conservative supposedly being nominated to what bench? Right. We take this a little more seriously than we used to. Good for us for doing so. Still not quite seriously enough. I had a caller yesterday who said that still, you know, the best justices on the Supreme Court are probably Alito and Thomas. The jury's still out on uh, jury's still out on 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 the last couple ones that were named by Trump, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I just hope that they aren't trying to be uh, trying to win over editorial writers yep. at the New York Times and the Washington Post. They're actually concerned about the Constitution and their role. It, it's not to uh, signal to the correct crowd of people. Uh, I don't know, writing at Slate.com, yeah. it's to preserve law and order in this country. And frankly, if the Congress wants to make a law changing things, they can do that. That's their job. But the Supreme Court is there to be a neutral arbiter just saying, well, sorry, you need to pass a law if you want to do this and find the votes and get it done. Otherwise, we can't do this under current law. It is interesting, too, to me that the courts seem to be, the Supreme Court seems to be a little more willing than it has been in the last 10 or 12 years or so. It's a little more willing to take on cases that used to be kind of called culture war cases. I mean, we don't have really the results in just yet, but they seem to be taking up a bunch of things that they used to be more hesitant to take up, doesn't it? Whether it's these federal mandates, whether it's uh, the abortion uh, statutes that have been recently passed, they – 
I'm I'm hoping that that's a signal and an indication that they want to make some clarifications at worst. Right. <laughs> you know, at worst to some previous. Yeah, I sure hope so. Um, and Robert really needs to. He always does this fence straddling act, and let's just uh, write our decisions with as few ramifications as possible. And he needs to take his role seriously. Um, He's not there to court the favor of insiders in the Beltway, but to just call ball and strikes on the Constitution. It's pretty. His job is pretty straightforward, and if he keeps trying to hedge his bets, um, that's what will look political for him. I think. I think he just needs to call them as he sees them and stop worrying about accommodating so many people, because you know that's his job. One more question for you. I've been asking a lot of my guests uh, who are involved in political uh, analysis, John. Um, You look around. Virginia will tell us something uh, in two Tuesdays, I guess. It'll tell us something. But when I looked at California early on, I thought Larry Elder not only was uh, a a, a potentially good candidate, I thought he was likely – to beat Gavin Newsom, when you looked at the crime rates, when you looked at the education failures, when you looked at the drug rates, when you looked at the price increases, when you looked at the nonsensical mandates, when you looked at the homeless issues. And I'm wondering if there's a sense you pick up or I, if I'm right in saying it's, it seems like big swaths of this country are just kind of getting used to decadence. You know, they had the yeah. opportunity to change all that, and they doubled down on it. Am I being too cynical? I don't think you are. I think a lot of people are feeling that way, and they just want to be on the same side as their favorite late-night talk host, mm-hmm. um, what the right-thinking people uh, believe at their office. They just want to be accepted uh, by those around them, um, and not realizing you, you have privacy in the voting booth. You yeah. don't you don't need to impress anybody <laughs> uh, with your vote, and it's not it's really not worth it. And one thing you constantly see with these terrible policies that these uh, one party states like California, these policies that they push, who it hurts is the underclass, yeah. it's the people who don't have advantages. Yep. And uh, it doesn't matter, you know, yes, you'll have minorities there, but you also have poor everybody else as well. That's right. And those are the people most hurt. If you're living in a mansion in Malibu, you will be insulated from all these problems. You can hire private security. That's right. It's the more downtrodden people who are hurt, and uh, they think that's fine. Yeah, that's right. Now, that's an interesting point. You can hire private security while denying the rest of us security, police, or fencing <laughs> you right. can you can hire a private education system and uh you can obviously do private and concierge medicine you can, you you're right you can iso- and you can afford private uh private rehab which is very expensive if 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 drugs yeah, are definitely. Ah, you can live very far removed as an elite that's why they say socialism can only be afforded by the wealthy i guess john yep exactly bless you sir i love it when you stop by Uh, Always great to be on, Seth. Thanks so much, and have a great weekend. You do the same, my friend. You do the same. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. Your show here on out. We'll be right back. When I was growing up, welcome back to the show, 602-508-0960. When I was growing up, I'm trying to remember, we used to go to the Phoenix Suns games a lot. 
and I'm trying to remember who are two top the three rivals I remember most. The most exciting games were in those days. I'm thinking 78, 79, Bill, 77 maybe. Um, uh, Portland Trailblazers. Uh, yeah, Lakers and the Celtics. And I think it was the Celtics we played in that famous, the little team that could and almost darn near did or something in the playoff, in the, uh, in the uh, finals. Um so I was curious. Uh, anyway, back to the Celtics. Ennis Cantor, someone on Twitter today, tweeted he is the tallest man in the NBA, and not physically, and not physically. He plays center for the Celtics, right? I think he plays center for the Celtics. Ennis Cantor. Boy, this woke stuff has made me learn a lot more sports than I ever thought I would know. I was on the Bill Bennett podcast this week. He always likes to tease me by asking me a question about professional sports, which he knows a lot about and I know little about. And I got him. I got him on one. Yeah. Anyway, when it comes out, people will hear it, I think. But anyway, Ennis, uh, Ennis Cantor, tallest man in the NBA. You want to play his audio? This is why someone wrote that. That is a genocide happening right now. Right now, as I speak this message, torture, rape, forced abortions, and sterilizations, family separations, arbitrary detentions, concentration camps, political re-education, forced labor. This is all happening right now to more than 1.8 million Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region in northern western China. Uyghurs are Turkic Muslim ethnic group, native to the Uyghur region. The Chinese government has been taking sweeping measures to crack down on the Uyghur people, simply because they embrace their own religion, their own culture, language, history, and identity. The Uyghur region has become an open-air prison, a surveillance state, where freedoms are non-existent for the Uyghur people. The Chinese government has sent Uyghurs, along with Kazakhs, Tajiks, and other Muslim groups to concentration camps for simply applying for a passport, for texting someone overseas, or for believing in anything that does not align with the Chinese Communist Party's agenda. Anyone and everyone, athletes, doctors, poets, intellectuals, musicians, community leaders, you name it, are currently suffering inside these camps where the Chinese government is conducting unimaginable human rights abuses and crimes against humanity. All of us must spread the word and call on the Chinese government for free the Uyghur people. It is so disappointing that the governments and leaders of Muslim-majority countries are staying silent while my Muslim brothers and sisters are getting killed, raped, and tortured. I'm talking about you. Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, Saudi King Salman, United Arab Emirates Mohammed bin Zayed, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi. It's shameful and sad how you have decided to prioritize money and business with China over human rights. You call yourself Muslims, but you are just using that for show. You simply do not care about people. And this goes to fellow Muslim athletes as well. Why are you staying silent? Mohammed Salah, Karim Abdul Jabbar, 
Amir Khan, say something, do something, speak up. Your silence and your inaction is complicit. To those of you watching who care about human dignity, please join me in spreading the word. What is happening to the Uyghurs is one of the worst human rights abuses in the world today. We cannot stay silent. Heartless dictator of China, Xi Jinping, and the Communist Party of China, I'm calling you out right now in front of the whole world. Close down the slave labor camps and free the Uyghur people. Stop the genocide now. Tallest man in the NBA. China is now not airing Celtics games. Who the hell cares? Free the persecuted. Free the persecuted. Then I'll care what the China's ministries of information do. Be right back. Again, uh, thank goodness uh, for people like uh, Ennis Cantor. And uh, he calls out fellow NBA greats, doesn't he, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, to stand with him, to stand up and speak out. I don't know what kind of pushback the Celtics franchise will put on place on him, nor do I know what the NBA might say generally. But they're slowly losing audience share in China. Good. Good. I, um, I, 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 listen, I, it's a lot different, so far at least, it's a lot different than two years ago when then, uh, then the Houston Rockets manager, Daryl Morey, put out a tweet that said, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. Remember when the Hong Kong people were protesting against China's incursions and they were singing our national anthem? And he, and he tweeted, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. He had to apologize for that. The Rockets and the NBA made him apologize for that. It's a disgusting thing that they, that they made him do. And it's disgusting that he had to comply or felt that he should have complied. I, um, I, I, listen, this is a little bit different, and I, and I hope it sticks. I hope it sticks. Is LeBron James going to come after Ennis the way he went after Daryl Morey? Do you remember? Darryl, LeBron James was the first to attack Daryl Morey. He said he isn't educated on the situation. Something tells me that Daryl Morey knew something more about China and Hong Kong than LeBron James ever did. And I think someone like Ennis Kaplan, who, by the way, received a pra- – sorry, Ennis Cantor had, had – um, thank you – had a um, – had a supportive tweet sent to him from the office of the Dalai Lama also because he was speaking up on behalf of Tibet. It's really easy. It's really easy to condemn this country for something a part of it had and that the bigger part of it ended 156, 157 years ago. It's really easy to kick this country for something that ended 157 years ago. Evidently, for places like the NBA, Coke, Google, Facebook, it's a little harder for them for some reason to say something and do something, to use Cantor's language, to say something and do something about modern-day slavery before their very eyes that they are all profiting off of. Modern-day slavery before their very eyes that they are all 
profiting off of. We need no moral instruction from these folks. We need no moral instruction for them. When they were busy painting on the courts and on their jerseys and racism, perfectly, perfectly fine sentiment. I'd like to end racism too. I really do. But there are places where there is racism at a level that is slavery, at a level that is human rights abuse, at a level that is civilization abuse. And yet, somehow, and for some reason, um, so many people would much rather condemn this country for, again, something that we ended over 150 years ago. 156 years ago. And it was the minority part of this country, not the majority part of this country. It's interesting. That's kind of an odd view, isn't it, when you think about tyrannies of the majority and tyrannies of the minority? It's an odd view where the losing side gets the respect that it was the majority or the dominant factor in this country when it wasn't. The Confederacy was not the majority. The population, slaveholding population, was not the majority of this country. It wasn't even the majority of states. It wasn't the majority of the armies either, of the two battling armies. The anti-slavery cause was always the majority, always the majority here. And yet this country somehow, some way, for some reason, it's in the grip of thinking that it defines not only something that we ended a long, long time ago, but beyond that, refuses to speak about it when they're making money off it present day. Refuses to. It's easier to condemn America. It's easier to condemn America. Now, I understand it's hard to condemn China from within. It shouldn't be here. I condemn China. See, how hard was that? That's the least of it. That's the least of it. But as Jean-Francois Ravel put it in How Democracies Perish, a civilization that feels guilty for everything it is and does will lack the energy and conviction to defend itself. What worries me, what worries me is that I don't know if the woke among us have an interest of any kind at all in having an energy and conviction to defend this country. That's what worries me more than anything else. Is there an interest in defending this country? It doesn't seem like it with the continual breast-beating and self-flagellation. And that's what leads, I think, in part, in some ways, to what I was talking with John Gabriel about with regard to California. Now, Virginia's a slightly different story, whatever results from the governor's election there in a couple of weeks. It's a different story because Virginia is not plagued by the socialist policies of California. Oh, it hasn't thrived under Democratic leadership. There's no question about that. But it doesn't have the kind of crime rates, price 
gouging uh, increases homelessness, drug use, and failing educational indices that California does, which is what I'm calling getting used to decadence. Getting used to decadence. It's what uh, Bill Bennett once upon a time called spiritual acedia. Acedia is one of the seven deadly sins. We think of it as sloth. But it's really more than that. It's more than sloth. It's aversion and the negation of spiritual things. It's a spiritual torpor, if you will. And as the ancients wrote about acedia, it brings a sadness and sorrow to the world. A sadness and sorrow to the world. Is that the state of this nation we want? Sadness and sorrow? We used to be told that we got our culture, the rest of the country got its cultural cues from California. If acedia is what they're producing more than anything else these days, I sure hope that's not true anymore. You can be sad and sorrowful if you want. But don't ask it of me in this country. No, thank you. We'll be right back. I was thinking about acedia, spiritual acedia, torpor, and sloth. Um, three, three great literary quotes on this. One from the novelist Walker. Walker Percy, who's a retired physician, back when medicine uh, had many more doctors of note. He was asked once what concerned him most about America's future, and he said, prob quote, probably the fear of seeing America with all its great strength and beauty and freedom gradually subside into decay through default and then be defeated not by the communists, but demonstrably a bankrupt system from within. Weariness, boredom, cynicism, greed, and in the end helplessness before its great problems. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the West has been undergoing an erosion and obscuring of high moral and ethical ideals, the spiritual access, axis of life has grown dim. In the United States, the difficulties, he says, are not a minotaur or a dragon, not imprisonment, not hard labor, death, government harassment, but cupidity, boredom, sloppiness, indifference, not the acts of a mighty, all-pervading, repressive government, but the failure of a listless public to make use of the freedom that is its birthright. Of course, one feeds the other. That listlessness brings about the all-pervading, repressive government. What's the, John Updike probably has it most famously. Compared to the Af inhabitants of continent of Africa, Soviet Union, we still live well. But I cannot ease the pain of the thinking that we no longer live nobly, no longer live nobly. And if you need a little political science on this, 
1776, this country was nothing, promising to become everything. Having achieved everything, are we really destined to turn this into a nihilistic nothing again? Harry Jaffa. I'm Seth Leibson. The show is yours. 602 We got a new betta fish here. It's kind of got a rust orange color. Um, he's living alone, so he'll live long. But we need a name. I'm going to crowdsource it. Give me a good name for the office fish here. 602 And anything else on your mind? We'll be right back. 